All right, everybody, hello. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, good morning, and thanks for being here. Um, my name is uh, Zach Hines, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the Dynamics of Digital Collections, um, which I'm pleased to say uh, promises to be a very exciting panel and discussion. We have some great papers and some great speakers. Um, first, I want to uh, thank my co-organizer, Paul Fife, who unfortunately couldn't be here today um, and sends his regrets. Um, we organized this session with an aim to identify and share uh, innovative approaches to building and engaging with digital collections of uh, cultural heritage materials. Um, and in the simplest terms, we've asked uh, this morning's speakers to speak to a very simple question, uh, what can digital collections do? Um, and I think we'll hear some really interesting answers uh, or provocations um, on that question. Um, so uh, we've got a couple of uh, co-speakers, which will give, they'll give 15-minute papers, and then a couple of solo speakers will give 10-minute papers, um, and that should leave plenty of time for discussion, hopefully a whole half an hour for discussion. Um, so first, I'd like to introduce our moderator, Alex Gill. Um, Alex is Digital Scholarship Coordinator at Columbia University Libraries, uh, an affiliate faculty in the Department of English and Comparative Literature uh, at Columbia. Um, he collaborates with faculty, students, and library professionals, uh, leveraging computational and network technologies um, in humanities research and pedagogy um, and scholarly communications. Um, he's among the founders of several ongoing, warmly received initiatives where he currently plays leadership roles. Um, these are co-director of the studio at Butler um, at Columbia uh, at the libraries, a uh, tech light library innovation space focused on digital scholarship and pedagogy. Uh, faculty moderator of Columbia's Group for Experimental Methods in the Humanities, um, a vibrant transdisciplinary research cluster focused on uh, experimental humanities. Um, he's current chair of Global Outlooks and Digital Humanities, uh, an interest group connecting scholars around the world. Uh, senior editor of SX Archipelagos, uh, Journal of Caribbean, Caribbean Digital Studies, and co-wrangler, official title, of uh, the Caribbean Digital Conference series. Um, his current projects include Ed, a digital platform for minimal editions of literary texts, um, Aimee Cesar and The Broken Record, which is a minimal computing experiment in long-form digital scholarship, and uh, In the Same Boats, uh, which is a visualization of transatlantic intersections of black intellectuals in the 20th century. So everybody give uh, a round of applause for Alex. Um, for our moderator. All right. So Alex, if you want to introduce our first speakers, and if you guys want to come um, up here, I'll get you set up. So thank you. I'm, I'm honored to, to have been invited as a moderator. Give me a great excuse to, to come to Philly today and be tail end of the conference. Um, we have a fantastic panel ahead of us. Um, and sadly, one of our panelists had, had to drop. Um, but that actually meant that we could have a little bit more time for a Q&A. And one of the things I'm going to try to do is I'm going to, after all the speakers have gone, so I'm going to try to synthesize perhaps some of the things that they all share in common and maybe highlight some of the differences we might want to tease out uh, in the end, I mean, in good textual scholarship fashion. Right? Differences and repetition. Uh, so the way we're going to do this is I'm going to uh, introduce each of the panelists before they speak. Um, then after we go through the full round, uh, I'll offer a few comments. Uh, uh, <coughs> on the similarities and differences, and then we'll pass it on to a semi-structured uh, discussion. So part of the discussion, uh, we invite you to, of course, spontaneously <coughs> bring us questions and concerns that you have with the panelists, but we also want you to start thinking about some of these questions that we've been passing around uh, in, uh, in the flight as well. And also hint, hint, 
if you can have, if you don't have a question to answer, you have some right in front. Um, so, without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Lindsay Dikwirchi. Uh, is that right? Dikwirchi. Dikwirchi. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> uh, from the University of Maryland and Dr. Molly O'Hardy uh, at the American Antiquarian Society. Um, uh, we're going to deliver a paper uh, entitled Serials Cataloging and Alternative Access in the Classroom or the Making of Milk Girls in 19th Century Print. Now, Lindsay DeCursey uh, is an assistant professor of English at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Her book, tentatively called uh, Histories Imprints The Afterlives of Colonial Books in 19th Century America, is forthcoming with the University of Pennsylvania Press Material Text Series. Her work traces the politics and practices of antiquarian book collecting and reproduction in the antebellum U.S. She has received research fellowships in book history from the Library Company of Philadelphia, the American Antiquarian Society, and Massachusetts Historical Society. Molly O'Hagan Hardy is the director of digital and book history initiatives at the American Antiquarian Society, where she oversees a number of digital projects related to book trade, prosopography, bibliographic data, in linked environments, and rare book cataloging. Her work has appeared in the New Centennial Review, Book History, and American Literary History. So welcome, let's welcome them uh, as well. Thank you very much for being here this morning. <clears throat> okay. The terrain of digitized American newspapers and periodicals is uneven in pretty much every way imaginable. A comprehensive list of the inconsistencies both within and across collections would be long, but here are a few of the questions that arise in such research. Is the serial classified as a newspaper or a periodical? In the digital realm especially, this distinction is not merely a matter of pedantry, but determines which databases the researcher should consult. Does metadata exist for the serial? And if so, is the descriptive information available only at a title level, or is it also at an article level? How, if at all, does the metadata deal with title changes? What is the quality of the scans one can see? Were scans made from microfilm or photographs of the paper itself? Relatedly, what is the quality of the optical character recognition, or OCR, of the scans? When was it done, and who did it? What is the scope of the digital content? Does it represent a single institution's holdings, a country, a county, a state, in a given period? Is it thematically organized? And if so, how are those themes defined? What defines, for example, African-American newspapers or women's periodicals in the 19th century? The people who wrote for the serial? The editors of the serial? The printers or publishers of the serial? Or perhaps a woman's periodical is one intended for female readers. Are the images and OCR openly accessible? Are they behind a paywall? Is the XML available for text and data mining? And can the images be reused for other purposes? When Lindsay and I decided to collaborate on a digital project for her advanced level English seminar, Women and American Periodicals, we did not have the luxury of working in the same physical space of a reading room. This remote collaboration necessitated bibliographic control over the many iterations in which these periodicals existed in print, on the open web, and in proprietary databases. AAS serials fell into four, fall into four categories, not digitized, 
internally digitized and freely available, or digitized and in one of two places, EBSCO's AES Historical Periodicals collections or Redex's America's Historical Newspapers. This means that many of the society's titles are behind paywalls, but it does not mean that they can't be used by AAS. AAS retains the right to reproduce a certain percentage of this digitized material for non-commercial use. And so we started hatching a plan. In the fall of 2015, Molly and I designed a semester-long digital project. In, in the course, my students worked with special collections at UMBC, where I teach um, as well as with proprietary and open access databases of newspapers and magazines. The digital exhibition that we created, Mill Girls in 19th Century Print, focused on coverage in newspapers and periodicals from 1834 to 1870 of the huge influx of women into the industrial workforce. Featuring selections both by and about the Mill Girls, the exhibition highlighted um, the culture, working conditions, and the burgeoning labor movement which arose in response to these conditions. Students were assigned weekly tasks across the 15-week semester broken up into three major phases, initial archival research, selection and organization, and then writing and design. This project involved many layers of mediation, from the digital archives to the AAS catalog and newspaper database clearance, to AAS at, um, stacks, to high-quality photography, to digital content that needed to be described through metadata and contextualized through item labels. The goal here in part was to capture as much as we could the experience of viewing a page image in the physical archive using high-res colored photographs rather than the black and white scans, often from microfilm, that we might find in proprietary databases. So this is what my students would have encountered in American periodicals, um, and this is what we were able to, to put forth in the exhibition. Students were challenged to denaturalize what they encounter on their screen and to approach searches, results, metadata, and page imaging with the same analytical posture that they bring to the course readings. This kind of assignment revealed, though, the challenges distinctive to serials research, many of which Molly outlined in her opening. First, students were required to navigate a number of different digital databases, from ProQuest American Periodicals to free databases like Google Books, Archive.org, Kathy Trust. Importantly, the ProQuest database to which UMBC subscribes does not share the same holdings with the AAS EBSCO database, and so our selection process also required constant comparison of these holdings. We extensively discussed how to read and interpret metadata to better understand how periodicals are cataloged differently across these platforms. Molly provided a video tutorial in reading and understanding metadata so that students could input this information into a shared Google spreadsheet for use in populating our metadata fields on our Emeka, our Emeka site that we built. The spreadsheet then became a key mechanism to establish the bibliographic control required for our remote collaboration to function. Early in the process, those students ran into a key complication in periodicals research, which is shifting publication titles, something you've probably run into yourselves. Um, a student had contacted me about an item that she found in the New York Mirror entitled The Little Factory Girl's Complaint. She located this item in ProQuest American Periodicals, but was struggling to compare the title of the publication with the AAS catalog entry for the New York Mirror. In ProQuest, when my student clicked on the item, she was taken first to the PDF page view, 
which did not immediately reveal that there were other subtitles for this publication. When she clicked on details, she could view the metadata for that item, but not the full bibliographic description. And finally, if she clicked on New York Mirror, she would be able to expand the view by clicking show more and seeing in, um, the bibliographic description, but she wouldn't necessarily know how to interpret it. Only then could she see that the New York Mirror, a weekly gazette of literary literature and fine arts, was not in fact the title used in, in 1834 when the poem she was looking for was published. Indeed, the subtitle at the time had changed, a weekly journal devoted to literature and the fine arts. Next, when the students looked for the New York Mirror in the AAS catalog, she struggled to understand what she was seeing in the results. Not only did she find three somewhat unrelated New York Mirrors, but she ran into the problem, again, of shifting subtitles. The student never found in the AAS catalog the subtitle used in the ProQuest metadata, but did eventually locate the New York Mirror in which the poem um, had appeared. The, confusing, the confusion sort of resulting from this search gave me the opportunity to address with the class the importance of carefully reading catalog records and the bibliographic data therein. For example, we realized that the ProQuest bibliographic entry relied on volume numbers rather than on volume, issue, and calendar date to indicate the shifts in the subtitle. This is something, though, that the AAS entry did provide, and so it sort of helped her figure out when, how to line up the subtitle with when this particular poem was published. The other tool that was available to our students was that AAS included um, other tags at the bottom of the catalog entry that allowed students to sort of follow um, breadcrumbs to other uh, subtitles of this particular publication. One of the other tools we also made use of was the AAS's clearance database, um, which is a database of newspapers that documents the holdings in the AAS stacks and the material condition of those newspapers. So for example, students, when they were researching the 1857 panic, financial panic, they found a cartoon on Wikipedia that they wanted to use from Harper's Weekly. Using clearance, we were able to determine that the AAS held the October 31st, 1857 issue, and then we were able to send that to be photographed and included in our um, timeline. The dilemmas Lindsay outlines are not limited to the digital incarnations of these, of these material objects as data and metadata. Cataloging, housing, shelving, all the ordering systems that institutional preservation demands are in ways anathema to the reality of 19th century serials whose fluidity resists the stability of the library. Lindsay and I were behooved to introduce students to what Paul Fife describes as, quote, the intermediary state between source object and digital surrogate, end quote, so that the life cycle of digital resources often fall victim in our research to what Fife terms sublimation. Lindsay has already offered one such example of how close attention to metadata led to an unearthing of the transmission between the physical and digital. I'd like to offer another such example of what the unearthing can look like in the stacks. In their secondary reading, the students came across a citation for, for duties and rights of male girls in the New England offering. They did what we all do. They made a Google asking the omniscient interface to provide for them, and lo and behold, they found the article they sought and dutifully copied metadata into the spreadsheet we had set up for them, so I could rapidly find the item in the catalog and then in the collection. They needed images of volume one, pages two to six of the April 1848 New England offering. Simple enough, except it's not. 
A search for the New England offering in the AAS catalog yields two results, both the New England offering and the Lowell offering. Examination of the New England offering record explains why. It resumed a periodical that from 1843 to 1845 was the Lowell offering. But wait, there's more. If we drill down, we find a series of title changes. Before it was the Lowell offering from 1843 to 1845, it was the Lowell offering and magazine from 1842 to 1843 after absorbing the operator's magazine. And before that, it was the Lowell offering for the first time from 1842 to 1842. The periodical then took a break before being reissued as the New England Offering from 1848 to 1850. And so, from the catalog records alone, which trace these tra changes through the Mark 785 subfield T, we can reconstruct these name changes. Is this bibliography? Media archaeology? Either way, I want to point out that the deep cataloging records alone enable this kind of retracing and unearthing. Questions about why 19th century serials generally, and the New England offering in particular, change so frequent are outside the scope of the catalog, as well as of our short presentation this morning. But I will repeat a reminder that my colleague, Vincent Golden, curator of newspapers and periodicals at AAS, is fond of saying, 19th century editors didn't give a damn about the contemporary researcher. And so there you have it. We must piece together these changes through the artifacts they have left us. This is straightforward enough to communicate to Lindsay's students when they were confused by their search results in the catalog. When I head into the stacks to page these requests for photographing, I encounter another layer of the historical information system that organizes these women's writings. Recall that I'm looking for volume one of the New England offering. AAS's periodical holdings are organized alphabetically by title, so volume one of the New England offering should be in aisle 11. And it is, except according to the label on the bound volume, the first volume of the New England offering is now volume six. Though this might cause some consternation at first glance, the answer is simple enough. This is the answer. It's simple enough if the history of the periodical is known, i.e. that it was once the Lowell offering, or, as I hope to have shown a moment ago, if the catalog record is carefully studied before retrieval. One might also begin to draw inferences from the bound volumes itself with its... Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm off. Yeah, with its, red, with its red leather uh, and gilt binding and gilt binding and edges done closer to the time of the periodical's publication than to the present day. Probably later in the 19th century, or perhaps the beginning of the 20th century, when Charles Henry Taylor, the publisher of the Boston Globe and one of AAS's greatest benefactors, gifted it, along with thousands of books, manuscripts, prints, and newspapers to the society. The information system of the library itself, in this case, the alphabet that determines where periodicals are shelved based on their titles demands that these bound volumes be separated. So the first five volumes which contain the Lowell offering are in aisle six, easy enough, but this late 19th century binding job results in more than just the separation of the serialized bi binding. Open up volume six of the red volumes which contains volume one of the New England offering, does it first glance, does not at first glance put one's mind at ease. First we get a wrapper for the April 1848 issue. All seems well enough, but then we turn the page only to find a title page separately printed in 1849. This appears to be an all-inclusive title page, not made for a particular issue. 
turn one more page and we finally land on the April 1848 issue of the New England Offering. And then finally to the duties and rights on page two. Once photographs were taken, the students repackaged, recontextualized, perhaps even rebound duties and rights into their own ordering system so that we have working conditions, uh, room of their exhibition, which is part of portraits and labor. And unlike in a physical exhibition, we can flip through the pages using an e-reader. Molly searches through the AAS periodical stacks and my students searches in mixed digital repositories underscores the continued need for collaboration between researchers, catalogers, curators, and database designers to make and remake the historical records in the digital age. Our example also highlights what Fife has described as a critical but often neglected link between 19th century serials and digital researchers, the quote 20th century transmission histories that establish the parameters for scholarly resources in digital forms. Fife reminds us of the decisions, revisions, and remediations made across time and technologies to bring periodicals to our screens. One can use the resources we find online without noticing these layers, but to produce meaningful and accurate representations of the historical record is another story. Our frustrated searches were ultimately fruitful then as subjects of critical inquiry. This project challenged us to not only consider how mill women were represented in historical periodicals, but how historical periodicals are represented in material and digital ordering systems. Thanks. Thank you, guys. So, next up, uh, we have... Uh, Dr. Fiona E. French from the Library of Congress and Dr. Alberto Campagnolo. Uh, Is that right, Campagnolo? Yes. Uh, we're going to present the paper entitled uh, The Digital Cultural Object, New Digital Layers for Document and Object Archaeology. Now, Dr. Franz is the Chief of the Preservation Research and Testing Division at the Library of Congress. Uh, she researches... Uh, sir. <coughs> I'll drop you real, don't worry. Um, she researches spectral imaging techniques and addressing grammatically, sorry, and addressing integration and access between scientific and scholarly data. Uh, it was a badly grammatical reading, not actually, it was well written. <laughs> okay, you can stop right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. An international specialist on environmental deterioration to cultural objects. Her focus is connecting mechanical, chemical, and optical properties from the impact of environment and treatments, uh, serving on standards and professional committees for cultural heritage. She maintains collaboration with colleagues from academic, cultural, forensic, and federal institutions. In 2016, we all would like to have her on our team, wouldn't we? Uh, uh, in 2016, she was named the Clear Distinguished Presidential Fellow and well deserved. Uh, Dr. Alberto Campagnolo is currently the Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow for Data Curation and Medieval Studies at the Library of Congress. He has a background of 20 years as practicing conservator and is a well-known international expert in book Good morning, everyone. So you can sit back, relax. We're <coughs> not going to make you think. We're going to show you lots of images. So I know it's Saturday morning, but I will try and keep you awake until lunchtime. So the digital cultural object a lot of people think of a book as just a flat thing. We all know that there's a lot more in that, and I will first 
put the caveat out that I am a mere scientist, so take that into consideration. But there's so much in the actual object itself that brings out more information that that's what we really want to talk about. So what we've been looking at is creating an interactive interface for scholars to really get, dig down into that material and think about the archaeology of not just the surface of the book, but what's really within that. And if we think about linking that back to a digital rendition of the object, the book, how can we actually visualise that and show that information more effectively? So we're going to talk about some of the types of data that tell you more about that actual object and give you some examples. Spectral imaging, which you've heard about, is literally, we affectionately refer to it as shooting in the dark. So you start in, in the ultraviolet, go right through the visible and into the infrared, and from that you get this stack of images. You see as we go through, certain things appear and disappear on each of those separate images, but all of this image stack is fully registered so we can sort of poke through anywhere on that stack and think about what that tells us about the actual material itself. One of the interesting challenges, and I know some of my colleagues here will understand this, I just want to point out, when we do that we generate quite a lot of data. So if we start with a fairly small object, this is about, a, I'm trying to remember what country I'm in, um, 24 by 36 inches, and uh, from the recto and the verso, then we do zoom in images, we can generate about 30 gigabytes of data. It's pretty cool fun, but how do we show that and share that with everyone? Then we actually do processing and pull out other information, so we get these other layers of information. This is the one technical slide you don't have to memorise, but as you can imagine, to better connect all the different types of information we're doing, we actually have an underlying database which has open, accessible information in it that connects all the information together. So the concept is, how can we link this information? Imagine you've got a Google map of a document and you're starting to link these different types of information about what the ink is, what does that mean in terms of the time period that it was created, how can we actually talk about how the, the, the actual book was structured together? How do we pull this all together? And Alberto will then expand this into how we're looking uh, using the AAAF canvas. So just a few examples first of the types of information that should make you really excited about our collections. So the Voltimula 1507 world map, the first map to refer to America, down here in sheet 9, originally had red grid lines that had faded. So with the spectral imaging, we can bring back that information that you can't visibly see. So you can see here, you can just start to see the red grid lines. When we do some extra pseudo-colour processing to really pull out and enhance those differences, you can see exactly where the lines start and stop. A lot of what we do is work very collaboratively with I can almost say that we're on a Saturday, collaboratively, with the curators. I can't be an expert on all of the different collection materials, but when I showed this to the then head of the Geography Map Division, he got really, I thought I was just a number, she's like, oh my God, look, the, you see where the lines start and stop? They got this far in the Mediterranean. I'm like, okay, so that's interesting. So what's really interesting is that a lot of our engagement is also with the curatorial divisions to add that extra layer of information, and we'll come back to that a bit later. And how do we recreate the original wood block? So this is what the flat rendition looks like, but when you actually process that, we can show you the, what the original wood block was, the type of tool marks that we would have seen in that time period, which frankly is really good fun. So this is 1507, this is a wood block with a, let me not even try to, oh I did, I did it, uh, with a metal insert. So it's, it's re we're really starting to get a lot of information that you can't see from looking at that flat page. When you, take, when you think about what that map looked like and then you flip that onto what the world looks like today, 
they were pretty accurate at the bottom of South America, not so well further up. But then you think about, okay, what does that mean in terms of the sources? That, who was talking to each other when they created this map? So we have colleagues in Europe who are actually looking at where the sources were and how did they actually interact and create this map. I'll come back to that in a minute. So the first concept when I started thinking about this is if I have sort of the digital rendition, just a copy of that, and then I click somewhere on that like a map, I can pull up the spectra of some of the elements, we can look at what some of the microscopy looks like, what does the in, uh, an insertion, inconsertion on the side, and then what does that 3D rendition look like, and you know, elephant, because he's just really pretty. <laughs> Let's take that a little bit further. How do we link documents that we didn't actually know were connected within our collection? So we'd also been working on a 1513 Ptolemy atlas that had vertigree copper ink damage, as you can see here. And as we looked at some of this and were thinking about why only seven of the maps were in poor condition, we realized there were three different watermarks within this. And as I looked at this, I thought, I've seen that watermark before, and realized it was the same watermark that's on the Voltamula map cut a really long story short, we then put together some of the people who were interacting so and found out that Voltsmuller, Ringman and Ludd had been together in Saint-Dier, France in 1506. They start with this very high quality paper, they suddenly then get funding to create the Voltsmuller and as you know when you get funding you actually flip to another project. They used up all the good quality paper, their sponsor died, they end up relocating to Strasbourg and finish printing the geography with the poor quality paper, which were the ones, some of the maps that we found that were in poor condition. So these two items are actually in different reading rooms in the Library of Congress. There is no way a researcher would have actually connected them and thought about the connection. So we've now actually started to link other books with similar watermarks, and we're really thinking about you know who was working and engaging at that time period. I'm going to flip over to Alberto yep. to talk about how we're actually... Yes, so I'm going to show you like a framework of what, how, how we think that we, we can uh, kind of pull all this, uh, all this data. No, I don't need that, thank you. Uh, how we can pull all this uh, data together. And uh, one of the examples that we show is uh, from a collection of book blocks that we are trying to study at the Library uh, of Congress. And these are uh, printed books uh, from the 1470s. Uh, from Germany, they actually were printed uh, on, uh, for course, uh, um, it was book blocks and printed not off the off the press. And the curator is kind of interested to see how the uh, the whole uh, system worked and how the uh, coloring was applied on top of the object. And so we're trying to gather information for the scholar to study the object, but also trying to see how we can actually visualize and give this information to the to the users. And uh, to use. Um, we're trying to also use like a set of technologies that was already there. So our main uh, <coughs> technology is the AAAF, so the International uh, Image Interoperability Framework, can never say this. And um, so we're trying to use that in order to actually be able to let the people access the data and access the images and actually in, in engage with that. And uh, when we study the object, our kind of a baseline um, uh, data is, uh, as we said, the multispectral uh, imaging um, uh, stack. So we want to let uh, the people uh, uh, be able to actually select what kind of uh, uh, wavelengths they want to look into the object. And uh, what we find is interesting and useful for the uh, users, if I can get to it, uh, 
is to um, to be able to see how the different materials react differently to, to the different wavelengths, so they actually understand the principle behind the, the multispectral imaging. And so, as we as you can see here, going through the stack, some materials will appear, disappear, and uh, that helps the uh, user understand better the process behind it. And uh, on top of that, uh, we also do a lot of uh, scientific analysis on the uh, on the actual object in order to extrapolate more data about the materiality and the the way in which things uh, uh, were applied on the on the, on the book. And uh, in this particular case, the uh, curator was particularly interested, as I said, in the way in which the color was applied on top of the printing. So we did a, uh, a set of uh, microscopy imaging on uh, on very high detail on uh, some part of the coloring to see how things overlapped. And uh, here you can see how the different colors were uh, uh, applied on the on the object. And you can you know the microscopy is so high resolution you can actually get to see the fibers of the paper, which is kind of interesting. Um, what we want to do is to uh, give the user, of course, the, the information, the, uh, the images, but also a kind of uh, understanding of why the uh, curator wanted to do that kind of analysis and what's the, the significance of that. So we have like, course, the, the text that explains all of the, uh, the, the purpose of the whole uh, imaging. Uh, we also do uh, XRF, which is uh, extra fluorescence uh, analysis. And what normally happens is that ye, uh, the data is extrapolated from the object by, via the uh, instrument, and the scientists get these results. They can read it and they understand it, and th they will give you a result of what they think that the, the material was within the, the, from the analysis. Uh, but that's normally steps there. So uh, we we want to give the data there, uh, but also we're going to try to map that in a way that you can actually understand where the different materials were used on the full canvas, so you can see uh, where the material was applied. And we also give, again, an explanation of what all of that uh, meant. So there in that case was the uh, green copper with a degree of malachite, depends on, the, uh, on some more information that we can uh, extract. Uh, and then because the book is not just the flat image, and uh, this object was particularly interesting also for the point of view of the bindings. Uh, the, I mean, the, the book was printed in German, is a Sammelband, so there we have different kind of uh, materials within the same uh, binding, but the binding was contemporary and definitely German, and this is particularly interesting for me because it was, it's, this is one of the earliest uh, examples that I've seen of a stuck-on handband, so it's a handband that's not worked on the book, but it was uh, stuck on, uh, on the spine. And that's a very German uh, characteristic that you can you can only find in other bindings very later on in the in the time. So and uh, we link all this data through uh, linked data uh, and um, um, can't word anyway. Um, so we we cannot give all the data about that to the user. Then one uh, challenge that we have is that oftentimes we collaborate with conservation, and we need to do the same images over time. So for some time, for some project, we will find out that we have different uh, images taken at different times, and uh, we need to be able to present that in a way that people understand it. And this case uh, was particularly interesting because the conservators wanted to see whether the um, treatment they were doing on the paper to reduce the um, acid degradation uh, caused by the red degree was actually working. And uh, maybe you want to explain better. Yeah, and so if you look at the 
this little spot here, this was just a, a spot test to see could we actually remove this without causing any damage to the material. So the second set of images, what I've we've done here is I've said ev map everywhere and do, do a pseudo colour bright yellow for everything that's just a pure pixel of the paper alone. So you can see here in this region where there was the offset and the staining over here, it is actually going back to the pure pigment of the paper. We then take a little bit further in the bottom and do these three graphs, which one on the left shows the paper before and after, and we've seen no difference before and after the treatment. The graph in the middle is showing the offset of that verdigris staining, the lower red line is before the treatment, the, the upper black line is after the treatment. What does that mean? So on the right hand side we're showing that as we remove that staining it's moving back to the pure curve of the paper and we're not seeing any new peaks so we know that we're not adding something in that as we all know in 30 years time we're going to wish that we didn't do. <laughs> so the challenge here is like how do we show that temporal component because it's so interesting and not just for conservation, but a lot of people sort of thinking about how things are changing over time. Do you want to map one document on another one with different printing things and, and that component? Yeah, and this whole temporal thing, it's kind of challenging to do nowadays with the triple F, but we're working to solve that. <laughs> and um, so just to uh, complete, it's mm -hmm. like I want to show you like the kind of a overall structure of how they, we, we uh, want to see the, the whole project and what's important for us is that the object is at the base of the whole thing so you start from the object and you have the imaging on one side and the uh, scientific analysis done on the other side all of that is linked together uh, to the visualization where the uh, user can in interact and, and understand the object and the uh, data behind it but also they can grasp all the data and take it away and, and do comparison with other kind of analysis done on other objects. And uh, of course, we have some challenges, but we're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. So uh, next, we have the Global Manuscript and the Digital Boutique by Ms. Margaret Gann from the University of Iowa. Uh, Marguerite uh, Gam is Assistant Head of Special Collections and Curator of Rare Books at the University of Iowa. Uh, she obtained her Master's of Science in Library Science at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Sills, with a concentration in archives and records management. Her current research interests are in archival metadata and sustainability, cooperative rare book cataloging, and widow printers. Yes. Going back to the beginning. Okay. Uh, so at many conferences, I find myself wondering how my colleagues in libraries at other institutions are able to maintain normal workflows while creating entirely new collections and systems. Uh, at Iowa, and I'm assuming at every other institution, uh, for every major project, there are at least five other sizable ones happening in the background. So as such, I wanted to focus this time on a project revamp that ran in the background while other grant-funded projects took the forefront. So today I'm focusing more on taking advantage of such manageably scaled digitization projects to reconceptualize the arrangement of physical objects and vice versa. I'll also emphasize the importance of listening to users, making the most of the resources that you already have at your institution, and encouraging collaborative work with colleagues to accomplish major objectives. 
So when researchers look at our medieval and Asian manuscript collections historically, in reality and in facsimile, they do it for different reasons. This single manuscript may be of interest because they're a lecturer in art history, they're a scholar studying ink composition, they're a student learning about the transition from manuscript to print, they're a translator looking for new meaning in a work, or um, perhaps they're a devout Buddhist looking at a previously unknown text written by a master, as in the case of this manuscript. So in the abstract, a single interface can rarely satisfy all of those needs. What a researcher desires when they're approaching the digital collection containing those items is not the digital object. They're looking for something like the experience of interacting with the original, and their interest lies primarily in the materiality of the object, at least in the case of these collections. So this is especially the case at the University of Iowa, which houses the Center for the Book, uh, which many of my colleagues here are also at the Center for the Book, so well represented. Uh, to put it bluntly, inhabitants of Iowa study the materiality of the object in a serious way with extreme regularity. This means heavy use of the physical collections with a kind of focus not easily replaced by a digital facsimile. So the reason for this project was not just to supply an expert scholar with a textual facsimile, although we hope that it helps them too, but since we had accepted that no digital facsimile could substitute for the primary users of the manuscripts at Iowa, the real aim was to continue drawing people deeper into the physical collection, to lure them into the reading room and expose them to the possibility that we may have something else that meets their needs, something other than what they first discovered online, uh, either in digital form or in the catalog. So uh, this collection and its component parts were really built for those instructors and students who came in and told us that what they really wanted was to show their students or their colleagues in a, an early paper manuscript, any early paper manuscript, so not necessarily medieval. Uh, the digital could then become a gateway to uniting the physical. So stripped down, uh, there were several problems with the collections in their physical form. Uh, the basic issue was that they did not match uh, in physical as well as in digital arrangement how users were viewing them. What users had in common was that they wanted almost always an exemplar, uh, an exemplar of an early manuscript. The specific need varied, but the general desire was the same. Iowa's usage of the manuscripts likely differs from how other institutions may use them. Uh, the presence of the Center for the Book meant that they were generally examined for physical characteristics, binding, script, and substrate being the top three, rather than their content. The content, I was generally told, was not that interesting, although I, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> um, and since this project began, uh, that's been pro proven false over and over again. Um, but it was almost to our disadvantage that many of these manuscripts had already been digitized because that meant that we couldn't really justify grant funding. Uh, and despite heavy use of the materials, the revamping project couldn't be our priority since we had so many other projects going on. Uh, but a holistic approach seemed necessary. In order to make the digital discoverable, then, we returned to the physical. So we only had about 75 manuscripts that needed to be addressed, and solving these problems didn't seem like an impossible task. Uh, there was a Mellon Sawyer seminar at Iowa from 2016 to 2017 focused on the global book and uh, global manuscript that provided an opportunity to rethink how we conceptualized both of these collections. So I'll kind of skip straight ahead to um, goals and solutions on how we decided to solve our problems with the collections. You can see those here in full form. 
Um, but the largest change that we made was to rename the manuscripts as a whole early manuscripts and combine those collections. Uh, the word early was intended to be a straightforward way to convey what instructors and scholars tended to approach us for, so that was the search term that a lot of them tended to use. We had man multiple manuscripts dated up to around 1750 that imitated earlier forms. For example, a parchment charter from the late 1600s, so you couldn't really consider it medieval, um, but that was nonetheless the collection that it was included in. Uh, this meant that those manuscripts were frequently called up for classes to fulfill the same purpose as earlier manuscripts. The Asian manuscripts could largely serve the same purpose, even though some of them are later as well. Um, so the important thing to note, again, though, is that this all had to remain a very small-scale project. So that meant integrating all of the extra metadata that we created into uh, pre-existing systems and tools. All right, uh, <clears throat> let's see. So for the first two years of the project, major emphasis was on the metadata. We had to bring in experts to create our metadata for us, but that had to be done with existing funding. So I asked our really incredible graduate student worker at the time, Heather Waka, who's now the clear postdoctoral fellow in data curation for medieval studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to explain her approach to our metadata here. She compiled the vast majority of descriptive information for the medieval and not-so-medieval manuscripts. During the last two years of my doctoral studies at the University of Iowa, no. I was fortunate enough to right. be working in special collections as a researcher. Oh, it was worth a shot. <laughs> uh, so what Heather is describing is how she spent the first month or so of the project working her way through the manuscripts and examining how they had been classified and cataloged. And um, she I will just tell you, she doesn't give herself enough credit uh, because what she really found was that so many of our manuscripts were misclassified that it really indicated a problem with the core description um, and the, the core ways that the manuscripts had been treated in the past. Uh, we had virtually no descriptive metadata for our manuscripts and she really fixed that. She also corrected many issues with the ways that the manuscripts were categorized. Um, so she reclassified them in new ways, uh, but that created complications with call numbers that had been long established in scholarship. Um, but that said, she still couldn't do it all because she doesn't read 20 different languages, and that's the kind of scope that we were working with once we included what had been considered Asian manuscripts. So these are the tools that we had to work with. Um, some of them will probably, well, I imagine most of them will look pretty familiar to most of you. Uh, but metadata input sprawled across all of these systems in order to reach the broadest user group. So we're currently working kind of in libraries as a whole, too, uh, toward only needing to input information into one system that would then be uh, crosswalked into other platforms. But we're not quite there yet. Uh, so I'll spare you the intricacies of why and how we treated each of these systems and just focus on a few as well as the outcomes and examples. Um, so the Mellon-Sawyer seminar came up way too quickly, um, but <laughs> uh, it did mean that we were able to use some of the scholars themselves to uh, contribute to the project. So in this way, we crowdsourced a lot of the metadata that we were trying to get into the system for them in the first place. Um, but they were generous enough to provide us with enough information to get 
a lot of the Asian manuscripts into our more formal cataloging systems. Right, so uh, the bulk of the metadata in a searchable form is still in ContentDM, which we hope to replace with Islandora soon. Um, but you can see kind of the beginnings of the new structure, which will focus on form rather than on content with the addition of the palm leaves down at the bottom. Um, I couldn't figure out a really nice way to show a whole lot of metadata, uh, so I just picked the picture instead. So, uh, But trust me, there's a whole lot of metadata in there. Um, so in anticipating potential classroom uses, we input everything like conservator notes, rebindings, early bindings, script size, script area, and more. Um, so better too much information than too little for classroom use. Uh, so the live guide is kind of intended to serve as a central place right now until we get Islandora, but you can see kind of the beginning of the categorization system over on the left here. Um, so this is uh, one of Iowa's key platforms, DIY History, which is a transcription interface. And as part of this project, we input the early manuscripts into this system as well. Um, so one addition that we've added, though, is a translation module as well. Uh, so there are a lot of cla intended classroom uses for this. Out of time. So, yes, um, but please, I hope you all get a chance to uh, keep an eye on this project as it continues to develop and see how we're uniting the Asian, Asian, <laughs> and medieval manuscript. Thank you. All right, and to wrap us up, you guys switch the computer now, right? Nope, we're good. We're good? Yeah. And to wrap us up, uh, Jessica Savage from Princeton University will regale us with Dynamics of a Digital Art History Collection, Index of Christian Art 2.0. Now, Jessica Savage has been an art history specialist at the Index of Medieval Art since 2010. She holds degrees in art history from Pratt Institute and the University of Glasgow, and an MLIF degree from Rutgers. Jessica began at the Index on the Morgan Library Collaborative Digitization Project, entering medieval and Renaissance manuscripts from the Morgan Collection into the Index database. Her interests include the iconographic <coughs> cycles of 15th century liturgical manuscripts in early print centers of production, library, and digital humanities initiatives, index history, and taxonomies of art history. She is speaking to you today about the NEC Index database, which is available in data from form as of October 2017. Yes, thank you. Thank you, organizers. Sure. I my apologies. This, can you hear me? I really apologize. Okay. So thank you. Um, and you might notice I revised my title for this talk because as of July this year, we are no longer the Index of Christian Art, but now the Index of Medieval Art. Um, so I just called us the next indexed. Um, and by the time I give this talk, the Index of Medieval Art at Princeton will have reached an important milestone. A custom software package designed by Luminosity Labs will now harbor index research and images and serve global subscribers. It is the index's second database in its 100-year history. Unlike the digitization plan of the early 1990s, when the index moved from card catalog to digital platform with a relatively direct plan to make the files accessible through 
electronic indices, the index is now moving from an existing database to a new digital platform which has posed its own innovative solutions and possibilities. This paper will open up the ways in which the index has handled the transference of their digital collections onto the next platform when they collectively ask themselves what can this digital collection do and what can it do better. The Index of Christian Art, as it was then called, was founded in 1917 by Princeton Art History Professor Charles Rufus Morey. The discoverable index of medieval art gave researchers the ability to organize works by subject matter and distinguish stylistic and iconographic trends through chronological framework. By the early 1930s, the card catalog was in full development, owing significantly to a subsequent directorship by Helen Woodruff. It was Woodruff's formal classification system as an alphabetically arranged subject card and correlating photograph sorted by medium and location, which allowed for greater ease of access to index information. Works of art included in the corpus range in material and function from liturgical and luxury objects to commonplace items of daily life found in the medieval world and from monuments of architecture to pocket-sized manuscripts. So the first issue was complexity. We needed a cataloging tool that was diverse and could handle multiple different works of art, not just a manuscript project. Um, with great foresight, early indexers operated with the best research potential in mind, creating a core set of standardized data for research consumption. The index collection grew under these principles, strict adherence to establish headings, a neutral description of the iconography by moving top to bottom and left to right over a picture of art, and the use of language known as index speak, which stripped its writing of its articles and favored brevity and consistency. Catalogers were not to over-interpret the works of art, as in identifying a kneeling figure as praying or mention a particular use of color as it could sway research opinion. This paper file system with its diverse references to the content of medieval works of art and their scholarly references can still be browsed today on the Princeton campus. The first transformation of index information occurred in the early 1990s, as I mentioned. In 1991, research staff began developing the part of the analog physical files onto its first digital platform. This was just before the dot-com era and just before the revolutionizing impact of internet on research work. The index adopted Aleph, an integrated software system designed for the management of library collections that was modified to display images and to support the browsing of several alphabetical lists as a starting point into a work of art record. At the time, systems like Aleph were the only software options available for managing collections. The first database incorporated the vision for expanded templates to record research on objects, manuscripts, and authority files. The first digitization inherently changed index work. It added valuable layers of discoverable research to the project. Importantly, the index was one of the first humanities organizations in the world to make their collection available online through subscription, um, but they notably welcomed their first remote user in 1995. And that was Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. For most, almost 25 years, the index continued to expand its online holdings using this original cataloging tool, and the contents grew to, to over 275,000 records and 99,000 images. Several years of progressive growth and collaborative digital projects later pushed and pulled the index to new heights. 
but by 2015 the index was once again at a technological crossroads. The in-place system was a massive store of valuable scholarly research and images, but it was showing its technological age. On the user's side, database searches were stunted in terms of advanced filters and other existing dynamic search software applications. And a core element to art history research, the image, was hidden beyond the front face of the record, making for a laborious research process. In-house, the index cataloging templates that took on additional fields proliferated over time and lost some of their integrity. These were just some of the initial challenges which we understood by way of conversation, on and offline, and by way of a formal survey of our registered users. Here began a two-year period of intensive editorial re review where relevant and timely and sometimes arduous discussion ensued. How can we better facilitate the reach of our medieval art subject system and descriptive information? What elements of the record are central to our mission? And what elements can be streamlined for better research consumption? How can we ease the research experience to better offer customizable searches and provide more images up front? How can we increase the relevancy of this important digital collection for a new generation of users? We started with 117 fields um, when we started this analysis. Um, the first step was to, to do the preliminary analysis of all the existing data structure and content. Our current pl platform was tested and reviewed and an export was made which would freeze our starting point in time and help guide our future edits. One of the most prevalent issues from the beginning was the apparent lack of art history field standards in index metadata. The index authorities rarely pointed outward, nor were they backed up by anything other than the published scholarship which was individually attached to the work of art record. Particularly during this time, staff focused on implementing glossaries and controlled vocabularies, um, which would do a two-part process. It would place guardrails on our cataloging, but would also make for a more consistent, ongoing project um, at, for the user to search. Some of these main reference sources we looked at were the Getty Lexicons, the Grove Encyclopedia of Medieval Art, Glottolog, Library of Congress Linked Data Authorities, the Virtual International Authority File, VIAF, and the VRA Core Cataloging CCO Manual. On the whole, our innovation came in the form of moving away from the browsing of lengthy indices and encouraging users to approach these projects with dynamic searches of the system. The new platform privileges keyword and advanced searches with more filtering options for media, dates, and location information, just to name a few. When we first started to think about how to improve the search experience, we were thinking about a user interface that would mimic a commercial experience by offering specific refinements and a better visual front. Images now are all open on this system. They're no longer restricted. Um, they're part of the integral record. An updated and revised copyright statement makes it clear that the index is only the host and not the owner of these images, and they're for study purposes only. Browse options will still be available, but we're rethinking ways in which they can be accessed, possibly through subdivisions to encourage discoverability and show the range of our enormous holdings. Currently, we have a postdoctoral fellow with us for the year that will help us reorganize our subjects into a taxon taxonomic tree that will discover, encourage discoverability of the thematic content. Uh, one other major improvement to this work is our efforts toward public access with this 
new database in place, a non-subscriber will have access to a core set of data for fields that were previously restricted behind the paywall. This includes subjects, name of work, locations, and date. The new database also inc includes a responsive design, meaning that a user can access from a personal device or a smaller tablet. And we're working to engage with users and researchers on and offline through monthly workshops, surveys, yearly conferences, and social media. Nevertheless, these 2.0 projects are complex. The migration process for us had been a long one and a bit data messy. Getting information off the old server was not an easy task. Experts, exports were bulky, and the review process usually took several rounds of edits. After the edits, all entries had to be filtered and standardized on the old software system, which would frequently crash several times a day. Um, all of these steps for data organization and standardization took much longer than expected, but even with all these changes, we believe the database will always be a work in progress. Um, entering our research projects as well as keeping up with technology and the methods of our users. Um, however, in the meantime, we have launched a beta site. Um, that's what's available as of this month. And um, your comments and interaction with the search of the system is most welcome. Um, you can see just from the top here, we still have the classic query and browse, but um, more will be coming as we develop it over several iterations. So thank you for your attention and time. I thought it was going to be an easier job, or maybe I'm just really fatigued uh, from the long drive uh, here. But here goes my attempt at synthesizing. Never has pointing in the direction of some differences and even tensions uh, in what I heard. So here's some common themes that I found in all of the talks. Um, for me, there was this back and forth between the way that knowledge was produced in the past and the way that it is produced today. And those two models were kind of visible in, e in each of the projects, which is starting to put the latest with how uh, the index, the original catalog and index was produced versus how it is being produced today. Going back to the, to the, to the first, where we had uh, they, uh, that joke was fantastic about the like you know the ed newspaper editors of the nineteenth century never cared about uh, modern researchers. Uh, <coughs> there's also this uh, a common a theme is also this primacy of the desire of the researcher, which I always found to be a sort of Freudian category that slips into our archival work uh, of this desire. I noticed how important the desire of the, of the scholar, those questions we're always trying to guess, even by passing out this handout uh, today, is so central to even the science that uh, we perform on this topic. What, 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 what it seems to me is that uh, what we think is important to make visible seems to be related directly to the desire of the research and an assumption of what the research today of the 21st century, I think it was called. Once, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put a, a bracket and a question around that for for us to consider because that's something that is known. Uh, is something that always plays. There's another tension between uh, two schools of thought that are at war with each other in contemporary academy and the humanities, which are the close readers and the distant readers. And now, of course, 
some of us here in the room straddle the two and understand how these two can probably be negotiated, right? Uh, I noticed some of those tensions playing out uh, amongst you. Yes. <coughs> so some of the differences that I saw that were marked for me, or the most marked difference for me was in the labor arrangements in each of, in each of your panels. So this is perhaps a, a difference that, that, that we can consider to listen. These are, this, is, this was my attempt at synthesis. Now, let's open it up. Uh, I hope that that will give you a further framework for you to engage in conversation with our wonderful panelists uh, today. Uh, we take on your questions. So, Don. So I want to, I want to, I think, pick up a little bit on your comment about the, the, the desires of the users. Um, and because I'm, in, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania Special Collections Department, and we have digitized our manuscripts and made the data available online. And when we did this a few years ago and launched it, our thought was people, it was for people to use. It was for the users. And in fact, what's happened is the person who uses it the most is me. And curing, <laughs> I use that data to, you know, as a way to, it, it, it is in some sense a collection itself. Um, and it also gives me insight into the collection and I do a lot of work with the data. And I'm wondering if I can put them to the panel as, as curators, whether or not you're a librarian, you know, as curators of this data, how do you how do you use it, or is it really all about how other people how you think other people will use it? I really I think about this a lot, so I'm just curious where you all are. Fantastic question. And, and I'll just sort of jump in. I think what we're trying to do, and I've heard this from your presentation too, is that we're trying not to presuppose is what the user wants. So we're trying to be as broad as possible by putting it out there and then saying you take the bits you want and engage with it. So that's sort of <coughs> what we're trying to do. But think also engaging with curators and, and talking with a range of users to sort of see what that broad thing might look like and hope that at some point that if we completely miss the boat on a certain aspect we can throw it the model of what we're doing is robust enough to add that in. So I think I hear that quite a bit coming through that we were trying not to presuppose what we just wanted, but putting it out there. Uh, Let's just that out a little bit, because uh, that could be either a neutralist position in which you assume that what you're doing is neutral and it's not actually structuring the way that one understands this material. Another way to see it is just basically aggregated, in which you are simply applying known science and known approaches today to which one maybe there will be something useful there. And there also see the so um, there has to be there's judgment involved in order to uh, uh, so so what is, what is the judgment a little bit uh, there? Uh, is, is that easy to discard? Some kind of latent desire of the scholar? Um, I think part of it's been based upon the ten to twenty years of questions and engagement with curators, with conservators, and getting a Yes, a judgmental, but a feel for what sort of information they want, or that what they didn't know that they'd love to know and have access to. But also tempering it with the fact that I'm a scientist, which is why Alberto's here, so it's like, let's translate that so that the data's in a form that I'm not imposing, you need to look at the spectra, it's there if you want to, but let's put it in a form that we can engage and hopefully give you information and want. Let me throw that to other people. Also, we have two kinds of data there. I mean, in this, in this uh, project, we have both the raw data from what the center is, and then does 
you know, records everything we can be recorded nowadays with the technology. And then we, on top of that, we do the analysis. And that has to be driven by a research question. Because you need to gather some kind of data that the research question wants to find. Without that, you, you, know, you can end up with a load of different kind of uh, results that actually don't mean anything if you don't know what you're looking for. So we have both elements there that Yeah, I think uh, with the early manuscripts collection, I, well, I'm kind of going back to the question of the, the user and the explorer, what the goal is, right, and um, kind of directing them towards a certain path. And I kind of look at this collection as forced contextualization. So putting, by classifying all of the paper manuscripts together in a certain tab, we're definitely saying something, and it's pretty Okay. I mean, it's definitely research in a, a somewhat controversial way, um, but it is also for ourselves and to think of our own collections as this cohesive whole rather than each individually focused area of, you know, we're used to saying, like, this collection and this collection and all of our collections in one place. Um, so by bringing them together in that way, I kind of hope that we start thinking about them in that way, rather than as completely uh, separate areas. Yeah. I, was, I just wanted to return a little bit to, to this, this notion of desire that you present and, and say that, um, you know, I think in many ways we operate under a fantasy that the institutional desires and the researchers' desires that lead to digitization and accessibility points are going to be the same or not always, so that the institutional mandates um, and the researchers' mandates in a perfect world align, but alas, that's not the world we live in. Um, and so I, I, I do think it's, um, it, it's, it's both an operational and a sort of usability what, have you come up with strategies for to negotiate that attention you see? Well, I think that uh, the presentation that we made gave is a strategy for Perfect. This idea of the collection is also is also coming out uh, too. Um, for me, in that tension between the close readers and the distant readers and the service providers and the uh, imagined user uh, where where we have a sort of uh, sort of global tension right now between what is considered uh, either new knowledge or interface you know the difference between the two is often just simply who is actually doing the work uh, if a librarian is doing the work it's an interface uh, if uh, or an archivist right if a scholar is doing the work then it's new knowledge and for all intents and purposes, the product can be exactly the same <laughs> at the material level. Uh, now, of course, this is this butts against uh, the a, a major problem that that led Manovich Gablazin uh, um, pointed out recently in an article on cultural analytics, in which he said the fact that our collections are so divided among so many different institutions and that we have never achieved and will probably never achieve the dream uh, the dream of totality and interoperability means that distant reading is impossible and that new knowledge across uh, away from close reading uh, it is nowhere we're nowhere near that horizon uh, you know. 
<coughs> so I was wondering if it, all, of, all of you are trying to actually reach towards that goal in one way or another, of connecting between the symbol or connecting in that the index uh, uh, to other uh, outside. Um, how, how do you see yourselves structuring this path towards an understanding uh, of the sort of fabric that, that connects it all? Or is it something which you could love like that, like that manager says, and we should just focus on simply a close reading? And sorry if that was a little bit complex. I've been thinking a lot about this uh, for a while. So these things are, are coupled, they're well underway, 
and I really do believe we're going to get there. All right. Thank well, you. we wish you luck. And if anybody wants to learn about the project from Ms. Small Senegal, please right. uh, talk to her. Does anybody have any question for our panelists? Yes. I have a quick question, mostly to Margaret, but to everybody. Um, in the definition medical law, so when you're saying something is an early medical, um, I'd like to you know how you decide it. Um, because in some, many libraries, um, they pick an arbitrary date, like 1600, and everything before 1600 is early, everything after is not. Um, and as Margaret, I think, was starting to talk about, it, that often makes no sense at all. But it's a hard, a hard definition to make. Yeah, I guess um, in in the case of this collection, I have to say I'm not married to that term. Uh, and I do view this as a long-term project of, um, that's intended to be sustainable, but that can evolve over time, very much so, and I hope it will, uh, because the definition of the word early is complex, and it's the same it encounters in some ways the same issues that we ran into by calling something the Asian manuscript collection when it, when it includes manuscripts from Africa, or the medieval collection, which includes manuscripts from up until 1800. So in a lot of ways, it's just another um, kind of not, I guess I wouldn't say inappropriately used term, but it, it's not the best term for that collection. and. I, I think the way that I'm kind of justifying it is by saying that it mirrors the early, earlier forms of the book. So uh, early can mean different things in different contexts and in, in different uh, cultures. I think there's a, another panel that was talking about that earlier. Um, so, so I don't, I don't know. I think it means that something else in different contexts. So to, yeah, it's I actually, I like the term early as, as opposed to medieval. I, so my point was exactly what you're saying. I mean, early means, in my mind, as individuals, a book that follows the medieval tradition. Yes. And I can define that when someone hands me a book, and I can say, yeah, I'll take that, I'll buy it. But I won't take early modern papers, even though they're in the same date. But it's really hard to explain that to someone. So I think early is great, but you have to do a case by case when you go through collection and say, Am I considering this a modern paper or a diary or something? Or is it continuing the tradition of the handwritten book? So we might be entering the late stage. Yeah. Can, can I ask Jessica a question? Of course. Um, I, that image of um, Charles Rufus Murray and the yes. you know, index cigarettes. Later about um, you know, I, I really like that sort of breaking down data preservation, accessibility, and usability. Yes. And um, I was particularly <laughs> interested in the idea of the preservation of the data structure of the index card. Yes. Um, and so I just wanted to ask if you could just say a little bit more about that because I think yeah. that was really interesting and smart. Yeah. So the when we first started digitizing in 1991, um, the index cards were integral to creating these templates. So we do have the core subject system, which you can have a picture. Um, and that was actually a primary element, but it was in the template, it was actually hidden. This is, a, this is actually kind of a good question, because we have rethought the order in which we're going to present the information about the 
work of art. Um, and in this current system, we're preferencing the object. So what it is is coming first. Is it a bold? Is it a reliquary? Is it a manuscript? And then where is it in this next? Mm -hmm. And then, <coughs> then we're going into just a short format catalog and then the subject and description and later as well as provenance information. So it, it's a rethinking, but also it is adherent to where we started. Um, I, we're, we're open to suggestions on whether this is appropriate or this way. And we're going to take one of that. Oh, yes, I'm going to make a comment from the Bigfoot Institute, which I think is great. I'm going to be a little bit provocative here because it's Saturday and I can do that. Do it. Mm -hmm. But I think, coming back to what you're saying about what does a user really want, I think sometimes we almost overlay the data in terms of how we're cataloging things and not allow the users to really pull together what they want. And I've been having a couple of really interesting discussions with different different fields, and I think that some of what we're pulling out is that we over catalog and then you have to restructure of what it really means. So I think that's a really interesting So we're going to, that, yes. Uh, so we're going to take one last question. And then I'm going to ask you, everybody, before we leave, those of you who took some time to fill out uh, the questionnaire for Jessica, hand it out to me or her uh, on your way out of the group. So, last question. Here we go. Okay, so I have a question about the um, sort of tension between identification, um, authority, and discoverability. So, at the, um, the National Museum for African American uh, History and Culture in Smithsonian, um, if you look in their digital collections, you will find um, postcards to include caricatures of African Americans, right? And similarly, at the University of Delaware, where I work, um, there's a collection called the Gregory C. Wilson Collection of African American Trade Cards and Postcards, which are almost exclusively um, the caricatures of, of, of black people that were formed by the uh, sort of legacy of the Mitchell um, Black Reform Institution. Now, this is the, the title of these collections is uh, African American, you know, collection of trade card postcards. What we try to imagine a user, right, the appropriation of such images, a user that wants to use it for various means, such as an alt-right organization wanting to use the images from these postcard collections as an example of, you know, historically how black people were presented. Um, so try to imagine the, the wide range of possibilities of, 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 of users out there and, and, their, and their purposes for the, the sort of social life of these collections after they're digitized and put out there in the world. And I wonder if it's, it's, it's if there's strategies that we can come up with to sort of contextualize these collections um, beyond just the material metadata to prevent uh, or so, or somehow foreground um, the this this sort of imagined use of these, these collections. In these collections. Yes, I think that's it, and you know it, it is it is interesting uh, because it does it does kind of tie to to to, to the. All the projects in different ways. Maybe perhaps uh, excusing Princeton for the index project uh, because that one was uh, meta uh, for now. But um, the San Diego de Bosch, for example, I've been to San Diego de Bosch uh, on the on the border between France and Germany, and of course uh, I was there to do other archival work. But the town has big size. It says that the name America was first uttered there. By, uh, by a medical school, at a big conference. They still hold the geographic conference there every year. And that map actually brought genocide to my mind right away. <laughs> uh, like uh, all I could think of when I'm looking at mm -hmm. So you're looking at science and the building the material, and I'm, and I'm seeing death and blood and fire. Uh, so I, this question, 
the, the, not the expected desire, but the actual use. How would you address this? Uh, thank you for that. I mean, it seems to me like actually the Princeton stuff is the most relevant because of the way this index, right, this attempt to be neutral, right, and and as you know, we've all we've all read our, our Gilman, we all know that you know language, that data is not neutral, um, and yet like sort of at uh, when we're in the NACA catalog and our description for accessibility, right, when we are seeking to find that language, I think it comes out. Um, the tensions about how the thing would be described at that time and how we want to describe it, right? I think that comes out most pronounced when you're talking about genre heading, but but also these images are incredibly complex and we struggle with the question of the internet all the time because, and it's not as if like it was described once in 1850 and then again in 1950. There are probably three or four layers in between. So I don't have an answer. All I can say is I think it's one of the most important questions that we're facing right now. Really yeah. To build on, I'm sorry. Um, to bring up, now I fully more understand your question. So, <laughs> um, so the essence of my paper, what I'm trying to talk about, is that our, when we first digitized the card catalog, we had a lot to learn from that card catalog because it was a standard starting point. Um, so the digitization in that first phase followed that quite closely. So. Um, the second phase, though, we've been able to bring about a possibility for uh, some further reach, uh, further, better organization. Um, um, well, join me, please. Yeah, thank you.